0: Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com. Hello, everyone. I hope that you're all doing well. This week, we have another collection of stories that will fit perfectly in this fall weather. Let's get into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. We found something terrible in space. Written by Boris Basic Ian, didn't you hear the captain calling? Carter asked. I moved my gaze from the notes on my desk and looked in his direction. He was standing by the entrance to my room, hands on his hips. He looked furious and impatient. What's going on? I asked. We have an emergency. HQ wants to send us on a rescue mission. Rescue? Who? I raised my eyebrows. No idea. The briefings already started. Come on, let's get to the control room. Before I could ask him anything else, he turned and went down the hallway. I arranged my notes neatly and exited my room. The corridor leading down echoed with my footsteps and Carter's own in the distance. The spaceship was big enough for me to still sometimes lose direction, but at least it was equipped with gravitational panels, so we could get around more easily without floating and getting disoriented, like in the early stages of the simulation. I turned right at the corner and I saw Carter stopping in front of the control room door. He turned around and waited for me to get closer. Once I did, he pressed the big square button next to the door, which made it slide sideways. Immediately, we were hit by the sound of murmurs, as our other crew members discussed something around the holographic map in the middle. Behind the crew was a row of control panels sitting in front of a huge pane of glass. I glanced at the dark space beyond the glass Filled with hundreds of stars in the distance, unreachable still to mankind. It often made me realize how insignificant we are and how easily we can get swept away in an instant in this cold abyss and nobody would ever even know. I was shaken back to reality by Captain Adam's stern voice. Ian, late again. Sit down, he said. The crew consisted of six members altogether, and we had mandatory meetings every morning and evening to go through the list of inspections. So when Carter called me for an unexpected meeting at 5pm, I knew that something must have gone terribly wrong. I sat down and waited for the captain to speak. He said, Earlier today there was an incident on board the ISS-14. We don't know what exactly happened, but supposedly there are casualties and Earth lost contact with them. HQ wants us to go there immediately and provide rescue to anyone alive. But that place is pretty far away. The team medic, Riley, said, It'll take us at least a few hours to get there, and we're not rescue services. Yeah, but there's no one closer to them than us, Adam said. Now I know that this is not our line of work, but it has to be us. We go there, look for any survivors, and go back home. Wait, what about the mining operation? James asked. HQ wants to put it on hold. Right now, the priority is rescuing the ISS-14 crew and escorting them back home. "Ah, Fine, I'll start the engine, Hank, the pilot said. He stood up and went to the control room, with Carter and the two of them pressed a series of buttons. Every crew member was trained to pilot the ship, but only Carter and Hank could do it outside of any emergency situations. The ship hummed a life and the floor under our feet slightly vibrated. The view outside had started rotating to the right, making the stars dance across the window. When it stopped, it was impossible to tell which direction we were facing. However, the pilots somehow knew it from the radar and were able to determine which direction to move in. The ship started moving forward slowly but gained speed gradually. It looked like we were pinned in one spot, but I knew that with each passing second, we covered miles of the inhospitable vacuum of space. There, Hank leaned in his chair and we should be there in about three hours. Well, keep your eyes open, the captain said, and try to see if you can get in contact with them in the meantime. He stood up and left the room. I followed and went back to the crew quarters. I closed the shutters on my window and sat down on my bed. Although some of the crew members enjoyed the unique view from the windows in their rooms, I tended to avoid gazing outside especially if I was left alone with my thoughts. Staring out into the endless nothingness out there for prolonged periods of time made me feel claustrophobic and trapped. I knew that we were relatively close to home, but our planet was only visible as a tiny dot in the distance at any given time, with every other direction around us being infinite miles of empty space. For the first few days, I would glance through the window towards the Earth every few hours, afraid that our ship would drift away and that we would lose sight of our planet, getting lost forever in the unforgiving cold dark so unknown to man. I knew, of course, that no such thing could really happen, but the nagging feeling wouldn't abate. After a while of sitting on my bed... I went to join Hank and Carter in the control room. The two of them were casually chatting by the control panel when they saw me join and offered me to join in on the conversation. So, I was just telling Carter that the guys in the ISS-14 are probably just blackout drunk. Hank chuckled and craned his neck in my direction. What do you think? I don't know. It's strange to just go and lose contact like that. It might have had a serious issue, I said. Now, yeah, well, whatever the case, we'll find it soon. We're almost there, you see that? Carter said and pointed to the window. I squinted and realized that he was pointing at a dot in the distance. As minutes went by, the dot grew closer, and more and more prominent shapes gradually became apparent. It began to take the shape of a man-made flying object, and I recognized its disproportionately large wings as solar panels, reflecting sunlight. Well, it's still there and it seems still intact, Hank said. He leaned in and pressed a button on the control panel. As he held it like that, he said, Now we can see them. Everybody get down here. In a matter of minutes, everyone was in the control room and the ISS-14 was a lot closer and bigger. Displaying more and more visible details on the structure, like joints, pressurized modules, etc. Adams pressed a button on the panel and said, This is the US Collector 3. Does anyone copy? He released the button and we waited in silence. Nothing but the humming of the ship was heard. Adams pressed the button and spoke again. This is the US Collector 3. ISS-14, do you copy? No response. Adam sighed. Well, I guess we're going in. Bring us in closer, Hank. Ian. He looked at me. Suit up. I gave him a silent nod of agreement and proceeded to the lockers. I donned my suit and put my helmet on. I double-checked if the thrusters on the boots were functioning refilled the oxygen tank, and made sure that everything was tightly secured. Once that was done, I proceeded down to the airlock. Riley was waiting in front and inspected my gear once more to make sure that everything was safe. Alright, you're good to go, she said, giving me a pat on the shoulder. I pressed the button to open the airlock and stepped inside. In front of me was the second airlock door and a small round window, The final line of defense that separated me from a potentially painful demise. Riley pressed the button again and sealed the door behind me. I attached the safety cord to my suit and pulled down the lever on the left side of the wall. depressurizing airlock, stand by. A computerized voice announced. I glanced through the round window facing the interior of the ship and I smiled at Riley. I'll be back in a bit, I said encouragingly. Airlock depressurized. Opening airlock ready. I pressed the button next to the second door. It opened with a hiss and instantly everything except my breathing went silent. The weight of my body was lifted and I was floating midair. I used the thrusters to propel myself out of the airlock and finally stepped into the vast, empty space. That initial moment felt nauseating at first, leaping out of the spaceship and expecting to see ground beneath you, but instead being met with an endless abyss which threatened to swallow you whole. The ISS-14 towered above me now, much larger up close than I suspected it would be, a silent behemoth which took up almost the entire view in front. The docking bay was right in front of me, so I proceeded there as quickly as the thrusters would allow me. Despite being able to only go 8 miles per hour, I didn't worry about the speed, since I had enough oxygen to go for at least 6 hours, so hopefully I would be back to the ship by then. Ian, do you copy? Carter's voice came through the radio. Yep, loud and clear, I responded. Alright, listen. We scanned the area with thermals and there's no sign of anyone being alive on board the station. What? Are you sure? Maybe the device malfunctioned. Eh, Definitely not, because we picked up a sign of life outside the ship. Uh, Repeat that last, I said. There's indication that one of the crew members is spacewalking outside the ship. See that gray node just around the upper right-hand solar panel? He should be around there. Roger that, I said and looked up. Beyond the top of the station was exactly what was under it. Endless, vast void. It was a long ascent, especially because of the speed of the thrusters, but I slowly made my way up. Halfway there, I stopped at the sight in front of me. Holy crap, I mumbled. Ian, you okay? James asked. I stared in bewilderment, unable to respond. The airlock which led inside the station was wide open. That was not uncommon if astronauts went on repair missions which were short, but what bothered me here was the fact that both airlock doors were wide open, letting out all the air. Guys, I said, something bad happened here. Both airlock doors are wide open. There was silence on the other end until Riley simply uttered a dumbfounded. What? A probably human error, I said. That's impossible, Adam scoffed. The system would have warned them tenfold. You would have to be a complete idiot to make a mistake like that. Well then I can't explain this, I said and continued ascending. Pretty soon, I reached the top and had a good view of the entire station. The place seemed completely undamaged, so it made sense to me that someone simply made a mistake when opening the airlock. Any signs of survivors, Adams asked. I scanned the area and at first saw nothing, and then I noticed it. An astronaut blended with the white exterior of the station just floating around upside down. He showed no signs of movement so I assumed he was either dead or unconscious. I see something, hold up. I leaned forward and activated the thrusters once more. As it got closer I tried to speak into the radio to avoid startling the crew member. In case he was still alive. This is Ian Nielsen, does anyone from the ISS-14 copy? As I suspected there was no response so I simply said... We're here to rescue you. Try not to move while I attach the safety cord to you. I got close enough to the astronaut to grab his hand and turn him around. I saw a man under the helmet, seemingly sleeping peacefully. His forehead and the inside of his helmet had blood on them, and I would have thought that he was dead had I not seen the helmet getting fogged up every few seconds from his steady breathing. He had a name tag on his chest that said, Harrington. I found one, he's alive, but he seems to be injured. I said, Alright, we'll bring him back and we'll decide later what to do with the station. Adam said. I detached the safety cord for myself and attached it to the astronaut. I held the cord with one hand and pressed the button on it. It began slowly pulling the both of us back towards the ship. Alright, I got him, we're going back I stared at the ISS-14 as it grew distant again Occasionally glancing at Harrington to see if he was still breathing We had passed by the open airlock and I kept squinting at it Mesmerized and trying to take a closer look but it was too dark When it was out of my line of sight, I glanced back at the astronaut His eyes were wide open and he was staring at me I stared at him for a while, not sure if he was dead or alive or catatonic, but then I saw him blank. He started darting his eyes around frantically. I finally broke free of my trance and said, ''Hey, it's okay, you're safe now. I'm from the Collector 3 and we were sent to rescue you.'' Harrington mumbled timidly, ''Rescue?'' ''Yeah, I don't know what happened, but you seem to be the only survivor.'' I'm bringing you back to our ship. At this sentence, Harrington's eyes widened even more and he started panting. Within seconds, he was writhing and screaming, shouting incoherent words. He almost shook me off the cord and I tried calming him down. But it was hard with the cacophony of radio voices asking what was going on, and Harrington screaming and squirming. Hey, calm down, calm down. I tried to hold him still, but it was impossible. Don't do it. Don't bring them back. I managed to grab those words among all the incoherence in Harrington's sentences. There's no one left of your crew. You're the only survivor. I shouted, but he continued ignoring me. And then he started coughing violently. Droplets of blood splashed the inside of his helmet, adding to the other, already dried blood. He had a coughing fit for about half a minute and he took a few deep breaths. Then his eyes opened and he seemingly lost consciousness again. Ian, report in! Adam shouted over the radio. It took me a moment to recompose myself and then I answered. I think he has internal bleeding. We have to hurry, Riley, get the first aid kit ready. On it, Riley responded. Within minutes, Harrington and I were back in the airlock. I pressed the button and closed the external door and pressurized the chamber, putting Harrington in a lane position. As soon as the internal door opened, the crew rushed in and put Harrington on a stretcher, carrying him to the infirmary. I took off my helmet and with the suit still on, I followed them. "'Get his suit off!' Riley's voice echoed through the ship." Harrington was lying on his back on a table, Riley on the side of it, taking off his helmet. I got to the other side of the table and helped them take the suit off him. When I reached to help them take his garment off, the astronaut firmly gripped my wrist like a vice. Our eyes met and again he had that same petrified look on his face as before. He mumbled something, but I couldn't understand him. I leaned in and told him to repeat what he said. "'You brought them back,' he said with a trembling voice. I looked down in time to see Riley take off Harrington's garment and an audible scream was heard from her, along with gasps from the other crew members. When I looked down, I could hardly comprehend what I was seeing. Harrington had a gaping hole in his stomach and in it, hundreds of thousands of maggots were squirming around, eating away at his wound.' They started hopping, some managing to jump onto Robbie's arm. She screamed and violently swatted at them, making a break for the exit. Harrington started coughing again, more violently than before. Just before he stopped moving completely, the blood from his cough spurted over my suit and I recoiled. When I looked down, I nearly started screaming. Along with the blood, there were crimson maggots slithering towards my head i swatted at them disgusted and in a panic at the same time get out of here adam shouted we didn't need any more encouragement we rushed outside and once everybody was out we pressed the button to lock the door we glanced through the glass on the door at harrington's body more and more maggots squirmed out of harrington's wound Impossibly many to fit into his stomach alone, swarming his exposed body parts and feasting away on his remains. Is everybody okay? Anyone get bit? Adams asked. Most of us nodded. Riley, what the heck was that? James asked, beads of sweat forming on his temples. Riley opened her mouth as if to say something. Her gaze still fixed on the infirmary, She shook her head without saying anything. How the heck did he get maggots on him? I asked. Even if he had a necrotic wound, there's no way so many maggots could just come out of his stomach like that. Well, the only explanation is here one of the crew members were infected and it got out of control, Adam said. Either way, it doesn't matter. We have to get in touch with HQ. He turned around and left the corridor and everybody else started towards the control room after him. Riley and I were at the back and as she started down the corridor, I grabbed her arm, a little firmer than I had planned to. She shot me a look of confusion as I stared at her exposed forearm. Riley, those things touched you. Did they bite you? I asked silently enough for others not to hear. No. She said and jerked her arm free of my grip and looked at me as if she was offended. You think that I would just jeopardize the whole crew like that? I don't, I just. And what about you? The ISS member coughed up some maggots on you. I'm clean, I'm positive. I said with her eyes locked. She crossed her arms and seemed to calm down. She said, Well, we should all get tested anyway but we don't have the necessary equipment here. Right. Our priority should be contacting HQ and getting back. If any of us are infected, they can quarantine us. She nodded in motion for me to join the rest of the crew. We entered the control room and heard Carter's voice on the other end of the room. This is the U.S. Collector 3. HQ, do you copy? This is HQ, what's your situation, collector? A voice came through. Move aside. Adams commanded Carter and pressed the button on the panel. HQ, this is Captain Adams. We arrived at the site of the ISS-14. Everyone but one crew member had died mysteriously. We managed to bring the crew member back on board, but he died shortly after. There was a brief moment of pause before HQ said... What happened? We don't know for sure. The crew member that we brought back seems to have been infected. He had flesh-eating maggots under his suit. We had to seal off the infirmary since we don't know the extent of the threat. Understood. Collector, right now your priority is sterilizing the contaminated areas in case these maggots can do some serious damage to the vessel. Once you've done that, haul bot back to base so that we can quarantine and treat you, if necessary. We're sending somebody out there right now Copy that HQ, collector out Adams turned to us with his typical stern look and said Well you heard him, let's first sterilize the infirmary Hank pressed a button on the control panel When nothing happened, he pressed it again He flipped a switch up and down and pressed the button once more Before he started repeatedly slamming it What's going on, Hank? Carter asked. Hank pressed the button a few more times before responding. The sterilization doesn't work. The button's not responding. Try some other rooms, Carter suggested. Hank did that and pressed various other buttons but still no dice. Crap, now what? Riley mumbled. Adam sighed and turned to James, he said. James, I need you to put on the hazmat suit and decontaminate the infirmary manually. No way, James rebutted. Have you seen what those little angry things can do? I'm not going in there. You'll do your job. Adams got into James' face before calming down. Besides, the suit will protect you. He then said to Hank and Carter, Start the engine. Might as well get going while we're doing this. He turned around to approach the holographic map on the table when Carter spoke. Uh, Captain, the engine won't start. Adams turned back and frowned, now visibly frustrated. What do you mean it won't start? Start it! It won't start, Carter blurted. There was a moment of intense silence in the room. Adams rubbed his chin and then turned to me. Ian checked the engine, but put the protection suit on just in case. I gave him a silent nod of agreement and left the room. James followed behind me. This is stupid. He threw his hands up in the air as we made our way to the lockers. Oh, suck it up, James. The sooner that we finish our job, the sooner we can go home. I scoffed. We donned our protective suits and inspected each other for potential faults and once we were sure everything was okay, I picked up my tools and we went our merry way. My job was to go under the ship's bottom floor and inspect the engine and to do that, I had to remove the floor panel and climb down. As I did so and entered the corridor, I heard James, a trembling voice over the radio. Jesus Christ, Captain, I'm in front of the infirmary. There's more of them in here. What do you mean? Adams asked. I mean there's millions of them. They're all over the place. I can't even see Harrington's body anymore. Jesus. My stomach started twisting into knots. I didn't like this at all. Adams continued. James just calmed down. Listen, we have to decontaminate the room before they spread to the other parts of the ship. Your suits will protect you. Pull the switch, wait until the process is done and get out. All right, all right. James sighed over the radio. I'm going in. Adam spoke to me and asked how things were going on my end and I told him that I was close to the engine. It was darker down here so I used a flashlight to illuminate the way in front. The corridor echoed with the heavy thuds of my footsteps as I made my way through until I reached the panel above my head which said, do not remove. James, talk to me, Adam said. I'm still okay, Captain, but I had to stomp all over them, it's disgusting. They seem to be ignoring me, though. Did you pull the switch? I pulled out my screwdriver and started to unscrew the panel off. Not yet, but I'm almost... Ah, oh, God, James shouted. James, what happened? Adam asked. Something just bit me, James yelled. Now, James, that's impossible. They can't get through your suit. It's made out of. Oh, there's a hole in my boot. I gotta get out of here. My heart was thumping against my chest rapidly at this point, and I had stopped doing my own job. My left hand frozen on the panel and the other on the screw. They're in my suit. God, James shouted. Get out of there, Adam shouted loudly. The next few seconds were filled with James' screams over the radio, intermittently getting louder and quieter until they had stopped completely. James, I shouted, my own voice trembling now. There was no response. However, Adam shouted again. Ian, get out of there. Uh, Alright, let me just fix the engine. Ian, forget the engine and get back here now. Uh, Hold on, if I fix the engine we can... The panel partially fell open when I took the second screw off and from the gap, hundreds of red maggots poured through, falling to the ground with wet slumps. I recoiled in fear as the maggots continued to pour out and pile in the ground in front of me. They started bouncing one by one trying to reach me. I screamed and bolted for the ladder. All the while, the voices of my crew members echoed through the radio, asking me what was going on. I climbed up and slammed the floor panel shut, leaving me with only the sound of my own frantic breathing. And then I heard a thud. And then another and another. In moments, hundreds of thuds were heard in the panel. Like the sound of rainfall, and I could see the floor bending outwards under the pressure. Maggots started crawling from under the edges of the dented panel and I screamed again, running for dear life. Ian respond. Abandon ship! I shouted between breaths, looking back behind me. I could already see thousands of maggots on the ground and walls behind me. What's going on? Adam shouted. Maggots everywhere! Get to your suits, we have to run! I ran straight to the locker and took off my protective suit, donning the space one instead, my trembling hands making it difficult to suit up. The rest of the crew members were there in a matter of seconds putting their own suits on. ''No time for inspection, get to the airlock!'' Adam shouted. I ran out first, rushing down the corridor and I stopped when I glanced at the infirmary. James was slumped over the threshold, leaving the door open. He had managed to take his suit off down to his waist before he died. Maggots were, wiggling inside his empty eye socket and his teeth were visible due to his lips being completely eaten. His body and the areas in front and inside the infirmary were crawling with maggots, possibly millions, piling atop each other on every single surface of the room, making it look like it was moving with their slithering. Go! Adams pushed me and I forced myself to look away and continue running. We rushed inside the airlock and as I turned around... I saw Hank lagging behind running towards us. His right arm had maggots on it, which he seemingly wasn't aware of. All of us were probably thinking the same thing, but nobody wanted to say it. That's why Adams stepped up and closed the airlock before Hank could get inside. Hank slammed the button to open the airlock from the outside, but it wasn't responsive during the pressurization. The captain, let me in, they're close. He looked behind at the mass, which drew closer by the second. Hank, I'm so sorry, Adam said. Hank started screaming and flailing his arms. Maggots started appearing in his helmet and he threw it off, trying to run in the opposite direction in a desperate attempt to escape. He never stood a chance. Since the maggots swarmed up to his knees in seconds and trapped him like quicksand, before he was completely covered by them, Riley screamed and cried, trying to put her hands on her mouth, but unable to because of the helmet. Opening airlock. The door opened and all went silent again. Never before has the inhospitable vacuum of space felt so welcoming. For a while, we floated in silence, processing what had just happened, and then Adams spoke up. A sentence which sent a chill down my spine so sharply that for a moment... I thought that I myself had maggots in my suit. We need to get to the ISS 14, he said somberly. Riley and I shot each other a confused stare but said nothing. Adams was already well on his way to the airlock of the ISS 14, slowly propelling himself with his thrusters. Carter followed closely behind, and soon the entire group of survivors was unanimously headed towards the silent behemoth of a ship. Captain, there might be maggots on there, I said. Oh, I know. Adam's voice came tiredly through. But some of us are low on oxygen. We need to replenish it and, if possible, repressurize the station. We need to contact HQ and warn them of the dangers here before those maggots spread. Even though no one responded, it was clear that we all agreed. After all, we had only two choices. Drift around in the vacuum of space until help came, or try to find shelter inside. Both options seemed equally daunting. What the heck are those things? Space maggots? Carter asked. Whatever they are, they can't be allowed to go back to Earth, Adams responded. We reached the airlock of the ISS-14 and went inside. The entire ship seemed to be dark, so we turned on our belt flashlights. Should we close the hatch? Riley asked. Yeah, might as well, but if the station is infested, we might have a better chance surviving in the vacuum, so be ready for a quick venting, Adams said slowly propelling himself deeper into the station. Carter clicked the button to close the exterior airlock door, and once we were inside, he closed the interior one as well. Adams went ahead, the corridor illuminated by his flashlight like a wave of light. We followed him, nervously jumping at every tiny detail on the walls which resembled a maggot's or it seemed like it was moving. All the doors are open except the control room. Adams said. Yeah, so? Carter asked. They may have vented the station from there. Common procedure is that in case any venting needs to be done, all astronauts are to put on their suits and head to the control room. Well, let's see if anybody is inside, I said. Adams nodded and pressed the button next to the door. A message popped up that said, Warning. Warning. Pressure inside the room is higher than the pressure outside. Do you wish to equalize pressure? Adams clicked on yes. Equalizing pressure stand by. The message blinked on and off for a few minutes and I felt myself becoming heavier gradually as the gravity adjusted until all four of us were with our feet on the floor. The display turned to green as it said Pressure adjusted. Warning, emergency power online. Oxygen production offline. Please use emergency O2 stations to replenish your O2. The door slid aside and we were met with the dim red glow of the control room. Immediately, we saw the body of an astronaut lying face down in the corner of the room. Riley rushed to the crew member and turned to herself, but her look of vague hope turned to disappointment. She's dead, she said. The rest of us approached and saw the astronaut's face. It was a young woman no older than 30, blue in the face, but despite the color of her skin, she looked like she was sleeping peacefully. Her name tag said, Moody. She's holding something, Carter said. We glanced down and saw what looked like a camcorder in her hand. Adam snatched it and opened it and the rest of us gathered around him. There was a folder open and Adams highlighted the first video by date. It started playing. The video was from the perspective of one of the astronauts, male, judging by the voice. He was hovering above the ISS and zooming in on something on top of the ship. When he zoomed in enough, it became visible that there was some sort of red egg floating around. If he was saying anything, we couldn't hear him in the vacuum of space. The video cut out on the next frame showed the astronaut gently holding the object from the previous footage in his hand. The red egg had veiny marks on it, and it was slightly bigger than the astronaut's palm. The astronaut flipped the egg from side to side, examining it curiously. The video ended there. Adams played the next video. The frame showed the egg from before, now in a glass display case inside the station. "'What the heck is that?' the person recording now a female scientist had asked. "'No idea,' another voice responded. "'Harrington found it outside and HQ wanted it brought back. "'What if it's dangerous?' the female astronaut said. "'Well, whatever it is, it won't break this case. Nothing can.' Oh, the scanner shows no signs of activity inside the egg, a third voice said. The camera zoomed in on the egg before the video ended abruptly. Adams played the next one. The video showed the same room as before but now the camera was placed on the desk, since we could see Moody sitting by it facing the camera. Bass wants the egg tested, she said to the camera. They don't want to risk bringing the egg to Earth. So I've been appointed as lead scientist. My job is to monitor the egg and conduct tests to see what's inside. So far, there's nothing strange about the egg itself. Maybe it's not even an egg. I'll continue to run tests. She reached out for the camera and the video ended. The next video showed the same scene and a visibly more tired Moody. She rubbed her eyes and faced the camera before saying Another egg was found today Nilsen was performing a module check when he saw it Despite initial skepticism, the egg will be taken back to base for study There were apparently more and all seemed to be coming from one direction There may be a nest close by As for this one She looked back at the egg and then at the camera There seem to be some signs of minor activity inside. It's hard to tell what it is, though. Whatever it is, it could be our actual first contact. She ended the video. I heard Carter mumble, Oh my god, under his breath. Adams played the next video. The footage showed the same egg from before, but it was now cracked at the top and on the side. Tiny crimson maggots were squirming around the display case lazily. What are those? Moody asked. Alien worms? A voice next to her had asked. Was the egg rotted? She inquired. It didn't look like it. Maybe the worms are supposed to hatch out of it. No idea. One of the maggots started slithering on the glass and moving upwards. The camera zoomed in and I clearly saw the bodies of the maggots crawling over each other. It looked like they had tiny hairs on their bodies. The video ended. I felt itchy all over my body, unable to shake the feeling of bugs crawling all over me. The next video showed Moody in the same room. There were visibly a lot more maggots inside the display, she said. They are reproducing at an enormous pace. The maggots seem to be dormant in the vacuum but able to survive. Keith followed the trace where the eggs are coming from and says that he found their nest close by. It seems that this really is going to be first contact. He hasn't responded to our call yet though, so the signal must be bad there. The video ended and there was only one more video remaining. Adams played it. The frame was shaky but we saw what was clearly the room from the previous footages. However, this time, the glass display was broken and there were countless maggots all over the place, covering every inch of the floor and every piece of item and furniture inside the room. The egg inside the display was broken into pieces now, and barely visible from all the maggots crawling all over it. Moody, move! Someone shouted. Moody panted in panic and pressed the button to lock the door. She pointed the camera left, down the hallway, and thousands more maggots came into view. Moody turned around and ran. A blood-curdling scream was heard somewhere before it was completely silenced. Moody ran inside the control room and turned around. Harrington came into view with the spacesuit. He pressed the button to lock the door from outside and shouted, Moody, vent the station. Wait, what about you and the others? No time, I'll open the second airlock. Get ready. He ran out of view, ignoring Moody's pleas to stop. Another scream was heard over Moody's radio. She stood in the room, panting in panic and panicking, looking over her shoulder. "Moody, do it!" Harrison shouted. Moody approached a panel in the corner of the room and opened it, revealing a big switch. She grabbed it and held it hesitantly. "Moody, don't. I can't get to my spacesuit." Another crew member's voice came through. Do it! Harrington shouted. Moody was audibly crying by this moment. With hesitation, she pulled the switch down and heard another short-lived scream. The video cut out and came back the following second, showing Moody in a dimly lit room with red lights gasping for air. She pointed the camera towards herself. Tears were streaming down her face. She exhaled with a trembling voice and said, Oxygen production was damaged. I only have a few minutes left. HQ doesn't know what happened and everybody else is dead. All the maggots have been vented out but the nest is still out there. Whoever finds this you have to destroy the nest. It's close by. The coordinates are on the wall here. She pointed the camera at a wall, and we unanimously looked at the numbers on the wall which were still there. Moody took a few shallow breaths and said, Also, please send my final message to my sister. She started sobbing more. Haley, I'm so sorry. You were right. Space is really bad. I wish that I would have listened to you. I'm glad Mom isn't alive to witness this. I'm sorry for being so stubborn. "'I'll always love you, little sister.' She sniffled and cried before turning off the camera. The four of us stared at the blank screen in silence. "'Jesus,' Carter muttered. "'So what now?' I asked. Adam sighed and gently placed the camcorder next to Moody's body. "'We're going to the nest,' he said with determination. "'Whoa, Captain, you can't be serious.' Carter said. Carter, you can stay if you like. Adam said and looked at Riley and I. Same goes for you two. Wait for rescue if you like, but I have to finish this. No way, Captain, I'm coming with you, I said. Riley agreed to come too, so in the end, Carter threw his hands up in the air and said that he would come along as well. All right, and then let's do this, Adam said. We replenished our tanks and found whatever could be used as a weapon. There were no guns aboard the ISS, which probably wouldn't be useful against bugs anyway. So instead, we grabbed lighters, deodorant cans, and pieces of cloth that we could set on fire. Before we knew it, we were back outside in the vacuum of space. Adams led the way, propelling himself through, with the three of us following closely behind. How do we even know how this place looks? Carter asked. For all we know, it could just be a floating nest and long gone from that location. No choice, Adams replied. We gotta find that thing. If not for us, somebody else will have to do it. We're not paid to do this, sort of. Carter, if you're just gonna be a baby the whole time, then turn back and get out of here. Adams shouted. And Carter hadn't responded. We flew in silence for a while until Riley spotted some tiny object in the distance. It looked round and reddish. What the heck is that? I asked, immediately suspecting the one thing. Adams flew there and grabbed the object, inspecting it curiously. He turned to us so that we could observe it as well. An egg, just like in Moody's footage, he said, letting the egg float. Indeed, it looked exactly like the red-veiny egg in the video. I saw more details than in the video, though. In addition to the bulging veins, there were thin, orange ones on the inside, visible on the surface. It reminded me of the time when I cracked open an egg and instead of the yolk, saw an embryo of a chick. Adams grabbed his spray can and lighter. Everybody back up, he said. He flicked the lighter on and the flame appeared, moving not upwards like in normal gravity, but dancing in various directions, almost like when blood starts to flow underwater. Adams put the spray can behind the flame and pressed the button. Although we heard no sound, we saw the wave of flame expanding like a torch and setting the egg aflame. Immediately we saw little maggots wriggling out and going for the captain. But Adams didn't let up with the flame, his face intense with revenge and anger, the flame reflecting from his helmet. He was practically burning them to a crisp. Even after the egg was nothing more than a burnt shell, he continued burning it. Captain, you got them, let's go, Carter said. Adams finally let up, observing his artistic piece of work before letting out one more gust of flame and then turning around. Let's go, he said emotionlessly. We were far ahead of the ISS by this point, a good twenty minutes since we left. The station seemed tiny from here, and we were mere specks of dust floating through space, surrounded by miles and miles of vast nothingness. The captain, we still on the right track? I asked. Adams kept quiet for a moment and then pointed over yonder. Riley Carter and I looked in the distance that he was pointing in, and there it was. Some kind of object in the distance. It was hard to tell what it was, but it looked rectangular, human made, and not crude like a piece of rock from space. We started seeing eggs more frequently floating past us, but there were too many to deal with individually, so we just let them be. As we got closer, it became clearer that the object that we were seeing was indeed like a cube. ...greenish in color with black lines going along the edges like columns. Is this it? Carter asked. It was big, a lot bigger than I had anticipated... ...easily towering over 50 feet on each side. Right in front of us was a rectangular shaped entrance near the bottom part of the cube object. One egg floated out of there, spinning in the air. Adams pushed it out of the way and illuminated the entrance... It had the same kind of green and black colors like on the exterior, but nothing noteworthy about it. He looked at me and gestured with his head for me to go in. I did as he said, and I gasped in awe at what I saw. The interior looked exactly like the exterior, but the greenish lines that went along the walls or floors or ceilings glowed in color that gave off the vibe of a radioactive material. Showering me and my crew members in a sickly green. I realized that there were a few eggs strewn about, firmly stuck on the walls in some sort of gooey substance. What the heck? This must be the nest, Captain. Are you seeing this? Carter asked. When we got no response from Adams, we shot around to see what was going on. Before we had realized what was happening, the exit slid shut and Adams was out of sight. The green glowing brighter now. Captain, I shouted. For a moment, there was only silence and then Adam spoke. I'm sorry guys, I didn't want to do this. You see, these worms aren't just flesh-eating parasites. The maggots can devour things quickly, yes, and they can reproduce quickly too. But they are also intelligent beyond our comprehension. My heart was beating fast at this moment, and I got a really bad feeling. Captain, open this door! Carter slammed on the wall which was previously an open space. Adams continued. They can get inside the host and devour him from the inside in a matter of seconds, taking control of the body. You see, Adams wasn't careful enough when evacuating the ship, and the three of you didn't care enough to check him for any marks. I can't allow you to stop this process. Carter started slamming the door harder. Riley visibly panicking and I kept glancing around to see if any of the eggs had hatched by any chance. But just then a voice came over our radio. ISS 14, this is HQ. Is anybody still alive there? HQ, we're here. We got a situation. I shouted into the radio. A moment later, HQ said again. This is HQ. Is anybody alive out there? I tried again along with Riley and Carter, but they couldn't hear us. And then Adams spoke. HQ, this is Captain Adams of the Collector. There are no other survivors, and I'm on my way to you now. Copy that, Adams. We'll stand by, HQ said. We tried contacting HQ again, but to no avail. Either atoms had jammed our signal or it was blocked inside the structure. Just then, I caught something with my peripheral vision. One of the eggs had started to hatch and maggots were wriggling out of it. We gotta get out of here, I said. Carter was still busy slamming the door and trying to contact HQ unaware of the eggs hatching. Carter, we gotta get out of here now, I said. We finally realized the severity of our situation and all three of us started propelling each other through the structure, using spray cans and lighters to burn everything and anything that got anywhere close to our vicinity. We had the advantage of the structure being spacious and the worms not being able to jump around in the vacuum, so we were relatively safe, except for the ones that made their way accidentally to us. The structure seemed to wind around as a corridor, eggs and slime decorating most of its interior. I had started to lose hope and thought that this place would become my tomb, leaving my body to float in the vacuum of space for hundreds of years. But then we saw the exit in the form of a square-shaped hole. We propelled ourselves out, turning around only to burn the rest of the maggots that had stumbled outside. Crap! Crap! Carter screamed swatting at his own hand and trying to grab something, but it was too late. There was already a tiny hole in his suit, letting out a steady gust of air. Carter grabbed his helmet with both hands. The shocking realization of what he was about to do hit me and I tried to stop him. Carter, no, no! I shouted, but it was too late. Carter twisted and his helmet came off. Instantly, his face had started contorting into one of palpable pain and changing colors. I tried to put his helmet back on, but he pushed me and threw the helmet further away. You would think that dying in the vacuum of space is a relatively quick process, but it's not. It is very slow and very painful. Carter convulsed, his face turning blue and bloating, his eyes turning bloodshot for what felt like minutes until he stopped moving completely and was left floating in the air as a ragdoll. Ian, we gotta go. Riley sobbed and I knew that she was right. We tried contacting HQ but it didn't work. So we simply flew back to the ISS as quickly as we could. We had to stop Adams or whatever those maggots controlling him were. After around 20 minutes we finally got back and saw another ship waiting nearby. We were greeted by the crew members who needed a few minutes to understand what we were rambling about. When I finally asked them about Adams, they said that he had already left with the other team. We tried to explain what had happened, but nobody believed us. We had to tell them to go and check out the structure for themselves, but to bring flamethrowers. That took another hour, and when they came back with two less men, they asked us to tell them everything. Adams had returned to Earth by then. When we came back, we got information that he had volunteered to be on the team which is running tests on the alien egg brought back to Earth. Again, they refused to believe our claims that he was being controlled by space maggots, so we knew that we had to take care of things ourselves. It's been two days, but Riley and I managed to get to the base. I'm afraid that this will be my last mission, though. I discovered a tiny wound on my right hand when I got back to Earth. There's no pain or anything, but something's wrong, I can feel it. First I lost control of my hand and now my entire right arm. It's moving, but not by my own action. I can already feel part of my neck doing involuntary movement, so... I'm afraid that I'm a goner. Adams needs to be stopped and the egg destroyed. Even so, I feel like this is a losing battle that we're fighting. The structure out in space was made by someone or something other than humans, and they put those eggs in there for a reason. With the busy fall season already in swing, you might be looking for some wholesome, convenient meals for jam-packed days. Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, can help you fuel up fast with chef prepared dietitian dietician-approved, ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, eat well, and stay on track with your healthy lifestyle. With Factor, skip the extra trip to the grocery store and the chopping, prepping, and cleaning up too, while still getting the flavor and nutritional quality that you need. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are ready in just 2 minutes, so all you have to do is heat and enjoy. Choose from more than 34 weekly, flavor-packed, fresh, and never-frozen meals. Plus, Factor also offers calorie-conscious options as well. Try delicious, calorie-smart meals with around or less than 550 calories per serving. Plus, with Factor, you can rest assured that you're making a sustainable choice. They offset 100% of their delivery emissions, source 100% renewable electricity for their production sites and offices, and feature sustainably sourced seafood in their meals. Head to factormeals.com mrcreeps50 and use code mrcreeps50 to get 50% off. That's code MrCreeps50 at factormeals.com slash MrCreeps50 to get 50% off. I worked as an ice road trucker in Russia, this is why I quit. Written by CIA Herb. I immigrated to the United States from Russia 10 years ago, but before that, I was a truck driver. I often drove the route with the seemingly innocuous name of the M-56, a road that Stalin had built with the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. They were people the state had, in effect, condemned to death, and the state didn't want them back. About half of them died. They froze to death, starved and collapsed from exhaustion. And to this day, many drivers swear they see ghosts on the M56. Traveling up on the M56, I would come to the Coloma Highway, which translated means The Road of Bones. It isn't a metaphor. When the gulag prisoners died constructing these roads, they wouldn't bury their bodies due to the permafrost making the ground too hard. So the prisoners' bones were mixed in with the road and covered over. The road itself literally has the bones of many tens of thousands of people mixed in. To call the M56 or the road of bones, roads, gives the wrong impression. At least on the last time that I drove the road back in 2010. It isn't a paved road but covered in stones laid thickly over the Siberian dirt that turns into quicksand when it rains. The M56 runs straight north into Siberia, and there are still countless deaths on this road. It often washes out and portions of the road would just collapse. Massive dust storms sweep across it, causing collisions and deaths as trucks and cars swerved into trees, or passed into the other side of the road and my cargo was entirely uninsured. I drove with tons of beer in glass bottles in the back, some of which ended up shattering from the endless vibrations of driving over the sharp rocks all over the road, which also ended up slicing up my tires. I would go through over 15 tires a month, sometimes 25, take a truck loaded with between 15 to 18 tons of beer and blow out a tire, and you could be sitting on an instantaneous fatal crash waiting to happen. All down the M56 you would see thousands and thousands of discarded tires on the sides of the road. As for the beer, the people living in northern Siberia loved beer. I think they drank it more than water. Beer is more popular there than vodka, despite the fact that it's Russia. Maybe beer is cheaper than bottled water. In some places it is. The story of my encounter on the M56 started before I had stopped at the warehouse dock to load up 15 tons of beer in my aging second-hand Japanese truck. It started when I saw a man standing outside just staring at me. He had very dark eyes and a round Siberian face with ruddy cheeks. He wore a fur jacket, but I couldn't tell which animal that it had come from. He looked bundled up with sweaters and multiple layers of pants. The fur coat also included a hood, which still had the face of the animal attached, though flattened and distorted. I immediately recognized that it had come from a brown bear. I got out of my truck lighting up a cigarette, and I started walking in his direction, pulling my jacket closed and putting a thick woolen hat on my head. The wind whipped crazily all around me, sending the snow sideways and directly into my face. I cursed, trying to turn my head. The front door stood just beside the strange man and I needed to go inside. Might as well start the paperwork now, I figured. The man just kept staring, however, even as I got near. I was about to ask if he had a problem when he started speaking, You are going on Colma, the Road of Bones, he asked. Yeah, I take the M56 North first, I said. That's my job, I travel here and I travel there. As long as most of the cargo doesn't get broken or fall off the truck, I make a decent living. You should not go alone, he said. The Road of Bones will break you, it will crush you as it crushed the bones of those who built it. You will not survive this journey, my friend, not alone. I laughed, but a chill ran down my spine. What are you, some kind of Siberian shaman? I asked. He smiled but said nothing. Are you a psychic friend? Do you tell me my future? I only tell the truth, he said, no more and no less. Many thought that they would survive the Road of Bones. Most still lay there, skulls eternally grinning under the wheels that pass over them. "'So what are you asking me?' I said. "'I'm not asking you anything,' he said. "'But if you want any chance to survive, I should come with you. "'I will travel with you to Magadan at the end of the Road of Bones, "'and then you will be free.' You will have seen the true nature of the road of bones and maybe you'll be alive. I squinted at the man wondering if I was talking to a madman or a drunkard, but he seemed completely coherent and logical. I wondered if maybe this was just the strangest hitchhiking ruse that anybody had ever dreamed up. I stepped back, feeling cold. The smell of fumes from the other trucks pulling into the warehouse parking lot mixed with the scent of the evergreens that surrounded us here at the edge of town. "'What's your name?' I asked him, looking closer at the skin of his fur coat. It looked like a bear. It felt too hot standing next to the heat of the warehouse to be wearing fur. "'Yakov,' he said. "'In my town, they call me Yakov the Seer.' I suppressed a slight smile at this. "'Yakov, my name is Nikolai.' Yes, I am a truck driver, why do you not just ask me for a ride? Because I want you to prepare yourself, he said cryptically, and then he would say nothing else on the subject, but simply told me that he would come back once my cargo had been loaded. I smiled and shook his hand, but as I walked away, I felt him staring at my back, and goosebumps rose on my arms and legs, and I wondered whether I had made the right call. Soon the truck was loaded, and I was ready to leave the lot. I stood in front of the door and I looked around for Yakov, but the thick snow obscured my vision. I couldn't see farther than 15 or 20 feet in any direction. Shrugging, I pulled myself into the driver's seat and pulled the door closed. The warm air from the truck made my tinkling toes and fingers warm up. I took off my snow-covered jacket and hat. The smell of wet wool still reminds me of winter to this day. And then there was a sudden rapping at my window. I jumped, reaching under my seat for my P96 pistol, which I always kept loaded and hidden in case of bandits. But as I looked, I saw Yakov's round, a serious face looking in at me. I sighed, motioning for him to go around and get in. Because this was an old Japanese truck, it meant that the driver and passenger sides were switched from typical U.S. or Russian convention, even though I still drove on the right side of the road. Yakov had a small leather sack with him that bulged with his few possessions. He sat down and looked over at me and gave me a faint smile. Let's go, he said. We have a very long ride. Indeed, we did. At least 72 hours up to Yakutsk where I would drop off the entire load of beer, and then a trip down to Magadan, which could take another five days. I then had to pick up another load in Magadan, a contract that I'd already accepted. They expected me there in eight days, and I would have to drive perhaps 17 or 18 hours a day to make it in time. I set off slowly, the wind howling outside and the snow quickly covering the windshield, As I puttered down the paved road and towards the M56, Yakov told me a story. I used to be a driver on the M56 as well. One time, I had a load of vodka to transport to Yakutsk. It was summer. Dust blew so thickly across the road that I couldn't see more than a few feet in front of me. I was afraid that I would go off the road and flip the truck. Night had started to fall so I pulled over on the side of the road and I fell asleep. I awoke to a tapping on the door. I looked up and no one stood there. I wondered if it was a trick. Bandits are known to rob truckers along these roads, as you know, and sometimes they even block the road with disabled vehicles to force the trucker to stop. Then they come out drunk and armed and steal whatever he's transporting. I nodded. I had heard so many stories. I had an old Makarov pistol. Must have been from the time of Stalin himself, he laughed. But I'll tell you, it was a good gun. As long as you cleaned it and take care of it, it would last a long time. Just like the AK 47. Cheap and durable. I grabbed my gun and a flashlight and began to shine the light out the windows. The dust had greatly receded and now I could see at least 30 or 40 feet in every direction. To my amazement, I saw people working in the middle of the night, but they looked strange and ethereal. They dug at the road with their hands, using half-broken shovels and rocks and ancient, rusted wheelbarrows to move the dirt. I rubbed my eyes, wondering if I was dreaming. I saw the identification sewn into the back of their jackets, a series of numbers that would replace that person's name, as they used to do in the gulags. I started my truck intending to get the heck out of there and as soon as the engine made a noise, they all turned to look at me. They had woolen caps and thinly padded jackets with holes in their pants. None of them wore gloves. They shivered, trembling, even though it was warm out at the time and then I noticed the horrific wounds that each of them had. Many had gunshot wounds to the head, while others had crushed arms or hands. Each of them looked like a skeleton, starved nearly to death. They were all dead, they had to be. I drove forwards, hoping that they would move out of the way, but they didn't. Very slowly, I drove towards one of the men in the group, one whose face had been destroyed by a gunshot wound turned into a mask of bone splinters. He just stared up at me as I approached. I kept moving forward slowly as I passed right through him. By the time that I had gotten a few dozen feet up, I turned around and saw that they were all gone. We had come onto the M56 by this point and the whole truck vibrated horribly, shaking on the loose dirt and stones that comprised the road. I looked over at Yakov for a moment, wondering if he was pulling my leg. have not you ever seen anything?' he asked me. "'Well, I have, but not ghosts,' I said. "'Not the ghosts of Stalinism.' I opened a fresh packet of cigarettes, taking one out and lighting it. I rolled down the window slightly. The bitterly cold wind began to whip into the truck, raising goosebumps all over my body." A cold wave of dread went down my spine, but for another reason, I didn't want to think of the story, and yet I told it anyway. It was winter, very cold just like now. I was driving down the M56 and found a car on the side of the road. Its hazards were on and its engine was not running. We never turn off our engines here in the winter because they won't start again in the freezing cold. Not a negative 60 or negative 70 with the windchill. I instantly knew that the driver was in trouble. I pulled the truck over and got out. I examined the car and saw that the windows were smashed. Shards of broken glass all over the seats and floor. And the driver seated looked like it was covered in blood. And yet, no driver. I checked onto the car and looked in the nearby forest. Shining my flashlight through the trees, I called out for the driver, asking if he was hurt. For a long moment, no one answered me, and then I heard it. An answer very faint, but with each of the words still recognizable. Please, it said, I'm hurt. Come deeper into the woods and help me. Its voice did not sound normal. At first, I wondered if it was just the voice of an injured man, but it had a hissing quality, a low, gurgling tone. I tried to think fast and simply called out a question. Did you get in a car crash? I asked. What happened? The voice came back again after a few long seconds of silence, and it just said the same thing in the same identical cadence and speed as if a recording played in the woods on repeat. At that point, I decided that I would leave immediately. Something felt wrong with the situation. I couldn't put my finger on it, but my intuition screamed at me that something didn't add up. I turned to go, and on the other side of the road, I saw, well, something. I'm not sure what it was. It was like a man, but hairless, its skin shrunken and pale totally bleached white against its bones. It looked starved, its knees knobby, its legs just consisting of bones wrapped with skin like white sticks. Standing there totally naked without any sex organs, without eyebrows, its nose and ears missing. I wondered if it was a human at all. Now looking back on it, I know that it was not. Its eyes looked like shining orbs of pure blackness, Huge pools of liquid black that stared at me, unblinking, and then it opened its mouth, showing many twisted and crooked yellow teeth. Please, I'm hurt, it said, never changing its expression. It sounded like a recording, and I heard the same words behind me coming from the forest. Please, another one said, maybe only ten feet behind me from the sound. I ran towards my truck and I heard footsteps behind me, at least two pairs and maybe more. I didn't look back. I ran for my life and flung open the door. Just as I was closing it, a hand grabbed my leg. I shrieked, trying over and over again to close the door. I kept slamming against the thin long white hand that had me. Eventually it let go and I threw the truck into gear and got out of there. When I looked back, I saw dozens of pairs of black eyes staring at me, unblinking. After we had told our stories, I drove on in silence for an hour, only the soft pattering of snow against the truck breaking the monotony. I considered putting on some music but then decided against it. Yakov broke the silence after what felt like a very long time. My grandfather died here, you know. He said, the M56, he died building it, sent to the gulags because one of his neighbors had a grudge against him over a land dispute. His neighbor went to the secret police and told them my grandfather was hoarding food and it said that Stalin should be killed. Of course, none of that was true, but during those days, a grudge was good enough to guarantee you a death sentence. I remember them coming at night, two men in long black overcoats with bowler hats on their heads, fashionably angled to the left. They barely spoke. My grandfather answered the door, they said they had a few words for him and then he was gone. I was in the kitchen with my grandmother and by the time that I left, I only found an open door in the autumn night outside. I looked around, hoping to see my grandfather just smoking his pipe or sitting out on the porch, but I never saw him again. We never got his body back, and I only found out that he had died because of one of his fellow prisoners ended up surviving. He lived in the same town as me, and when he came back after five years in the gulags, he told me that my grandfather would never return. He told me that he had a message for me. That my grandfather loved me, he would always be with me, and that I should be strong. I cried for a long time. The townsman said my grandfather had collapsed one day while working in the winter, his body unable to deal with the constant sub-zero temperatures and starvation anymore. A guard came over and shot him dead in the head, and then they kept on building the road throwing dirt and stones over his body. Soon the townsman said that he was buried under the road next to a dozen other bodies that had died during work that day. I think maybe that's why the ghost had called out to me here. I never wanted to work as a driver on this road but this is the only road leading north to Yakutsk and I had very few other job options. Yet knowing that I drove over my grandfather's body every time that I drove the truck made me want to, I don't know, get revenge or even destroy the road itself, I just don't know. He stopped. My heart was racing and I wondered how much he knew about me. Strangely enough, my grandfather had also been in the gulags, but not as a prisoner. He had guarded them and likely shot them and tortured them as well. Like all of the guards in that place, I never knew my grandfather, and he died of a heart attack before I was born, and yet I shared the same last name and my parents even said that I looked just like him, with grey eyes, high cheekbones, and thick wavy black hair. I had a narrow and angular face and a thin muscular body, the same build as him as well. I was told that we could have been twins. I looked in the rearview mirror, seeing my own face and the face of my own grandfather, like another face glimpsed behind a mask. I saw headlights approaching behind us. At first, I thought nothing of it, assuming that it was just another driver on his way to deliver goods. But they drove far too fast for the conditions. With the snow, the rocks, and the unstable nature of the road itself, I felt a sense of unease at the dangerous speed at which the driver had approached. I changed the subject quickly, not wanting to talk about my family's past. I think we're being followed, I said. Yakov spun his head, his eyes widening as he stared at the twin beams behind us. They're going far too fast, he said, and then I saw it. Ahead of us was a totaled car, a rusted heap of metal without windows, The front driver's side looked smashed in as if it hit a tree or a large stone. The snow had already filled the interior, covering the seats and upholstery, and I barely saw it in time. I immediately started slowing down knowing that a truck loaded with this much weight would take much longer than a usual car to stop. Someone rolled this out here, I said. I think this is an ambush. Just saying the words made my breath stop. I quickly tried to calculate our odds. I was grateful that I had Yakov and that he was armed. I reached under my seat and pulled out my pistol. Do you have any weapons? By now the headlights had gone from pinpricks to dull moonlike orbs in the snow, and I was rapidly slowing the truck so I wouldn't hit the car barricaded across the road, trying to keep moving so that I wouldn't slide off the road. Yakov quickly undid his bulging pack and reached through, looking for something and then frowning. And then he smiled, pulling his hands up and showing me a Makarov pistol. I thought you said that you had a Makarov, I said. Okay, whatever, I don't care. I looked closer at it. It was one of the oldest guns that I had ever seen, outside of a museum or a collection. The Makarov came to somewhat of a point near the barrel, Narrowing in a curve at the end. It had a wooden hand grip, deeply worn by handling over the decades, and the metal had tarnished and turned a dark color. But as a whole, it still looked like a beautiful gun and an antique, for sure. I wondered whether it actually fired this gun from maybe 70 or 80 years ago. I hoped, for our sake, that it did. The lights had nearly reached us by now and I had managed to stop the truck fully about 30 feet away from the barricaded car. It was the farthest away that it could manage under the conditions. I wanted room to back up or turn around or to accelerate and run over bandits if it came to that. I could probably smash the car out of the way of my truck if it were life or death. At least, so I hoped at the time. Looking back now all these years later... I realized how naive I was at that moment. I saw a man approaching out of the woods, hooded and covered from head to toe in black. Each had guns. The truck behind us had stopped. I saw a Toyota pickup truck extremely old and rusted. I saw that it had three sets of tires, two in the back, a dually. It looked modified as many cars in Russia are. Yet with six tires and no load to carry, it could move across the M56 at a speed greater than my own. I certainly could not run it unless I shot one or two of the tires out and slowed them down enough for me to find help. This area was deserted, but there were very small towns of nomads or natives in the region. Four men got out of the pickup truck, each carrying a rifle. We were hopelessly outmatched here. I wondered if we would die. I doubted it, but really, what did I know about bandits? Perhaps our bones would simply join the hundreds of thousands of others who had died here. Perhaps they too would become a part of the road. Get out! The man in front screamed at us. Covered in a ski mask, I could only see his eyes, but they looked bleary and unfocused. His gaze kept flickering from us to the woods. And then, around the area, and then return back to me. I wondered if these men were all drunk, very likely, if so, it may be easier to fight them off. I looked over at Yakov, who sat in his seat, trembling slightly, the gun in his hand. He looked at me, and I could see the terror that I felt reflected in his eyes. Should we fight? he asked desperately. I had no idea. This had never happened before. I had only heard stories, but... Get out now or we shoot. The man screamed at us, breaking my thoughts. Yes, we must fight, I said softly, as if the man outside could hear me. They might kill us anyway, I'm not taking that chance. At least if we fight, we might be able to keep our fates in our hands alone. These men are likely drunk and not very accurate with their guns... We might have the advantage there. I looked over at the man in front, seeing him raise his gun and aim it at me. I ducked down, and a minute later, a bullet flew through the driver's side door. The crack of it shattered the otherwise muffled sounds of the blizzard. I felt cold air rush into the car through the hole. I rolled down my window while still ducking down on my seat, praying to God for help. I saw Yakov duck down as well, shaking like a leaf, his hands trembling badly. I sat up quickly, aiming and firing at the man in front. He stood there, his gun pointed down, talking to the other man. The shot hit him in the chest and he dropped, screaming. I saw splatters of blood in the pure white snow around him. Little islands of red and an eternally white landscape. Shooting a gun in such a confined space made my ears ring and for a moment I couldn't hear anything. I saw that the rest of the men had been in a circle when I shot them, both the ones from the forest and the ones from the pickup truck. It would make it easier to pick them all off one by one, or so I hoped anyway. I counted seven more men to kill or disable, yet I hoped that if I killed a few, the rest would flee. They wanted easy targets and quick money, not men with guns who shot back. They all raised their guns to fire into the truck, swearing at us and yelling for us to surrender or die, when a shrill, ear-splitting sound suddenly came out of the forest. They looked away, their guns still pointed at us, their fingers on the triggers. I heard them babbling to each other in panicked, low voices, and they all began to run in unison back towards their pickup truck. They didn't even give us a backwards glance, or try to grab the body of their fallen comrade. They ran for their lives as if they had heard that sound before and they knew exactly what it was. I had no idea, however. I thought some strange Siberian animal would come flying out of the woods, some species that I had never seen before. But this seemed far better than a group of armed men. Oh, thank God, I said. They're leaving. Now we just need to push this car out of the road and we can get the heck out of here. Yakov nodded, still looking nervous and still holding his gun tightly. ''What do you think that was?'' he asked. I shrugged, apathetic. "Eh, ''Probably just an animal,'' I said. ''These people around here, they're superstitious. They think the boogeyman is. But at that moment, I saw not a monster, but a child fleeing out of the woods. It was a little Siberian girl, no more than seven or eight. Her facial features a mixture of Asian and white, reminding me of the Ibiriats that I had known, an ethnic minority in the region. She had a look of pure and utter terror on her face that told me that this was no animal chasing her. I quickly opened my door, running out into the freezing winter. Because this was a Japanese truck, the driver's side was on the right, making me closer to her than Yakov. Little girl, I said. What are you doing out here in the middle of nowhere? You'll freeze to death. Were you with those men? Are they your family? Did they kidnap you? She looked shell-shocked, her eyes widening as she saw me. I was kidnapped, yes, she said, but not by any man. Please, sir, get me out of here. My twin sister is still back at the hut. She needs help. That thing is going to eat her. And then she put her face against my chest and cried. It was the Baba Yaga, she's real, please, I don't want to be eaten. I grabbed the hysterical screaming girl by the hand and began to pull her towards the truck. At first she hesitated and then she began to run ahead of me, flinging herself into the cab and looking back out with huge dark eyes, like a gopher peeking out of its hole. That shrill, hateful shrieking from the woods had nearly reached me by this point. I couldn't make out any words in it. It seemed like just guttural cries of fury and hunger. I began to back up towards the truck my pistol still raised, refusing to turn my back on anything that sounded like that. And then I saw the silhouette, breaking through the trees. At first, I thought it was a polar bear, this looming shadow that snapped solid branches aside like they were twigs. But instead, I saw a woman standing over eight feet tall with mottled, grey skin and a wrinkled, gaunt face. One of her eyes looked pure white as if covered in a cataract. Her other had a strikingly pure blue iris with a deep, large pupil staring out from the middle, roving over the landscape before focusing on me. Her nose stuck out like a beak, sharp and curving a few inches long. On her neck I saw a necklace, holding the fingers of children, dozens of them, some rotted to bones, others fresh and still dripping blood. She saw me, looked at the gun and then at my face and smiled. "'You don't need to die too, friend,' she said in a sickly, choking voice. A trickle of blood coming from her mouth and rolling down her chin as she spoke. "'Give me the girl and you can leave in peace,' What's mine is mine. I didn't even respond, but simply fired, aiming at her chest. She fell back, screaming again, and I turned and ran towards the truck, slamming the door and starting the engine. The pickup truck had gone, and I couldn't even see its lights in the distance anymore. I started to go forward, slowly pushing the car aside with my truck, yet I couldn't get it to budge more than a few inches as it seemed to sink down into the snow. I tried reversing, but I couldn't get the momentum on the slippery ice, as the road sloped downwards in an angle towards the right side. I didn't have enough clearance to try going forwards either. I was stuck, and to make things worse, I looked outside the window and saw the Baba Yaga was gone. Only a small puddle of black blood marked the spot where she had lain. While conditions seemed bad right now with the truck stuck like it was, I gave thanks that at least the engine started without issue. At times it got so cold in Siberia that the engines would fail to start. The temperature had started to increase however and outside the wind had died down. The snow had stopped. And looking at the thermometer that I kept on the outside of the truck... I saw that it was only negative 5 degrees Fahrenheit now. I cursed, putting on many layers while I sat in the truck driver's seat. The little girl sitting between me and Yakov on an empty bucket that she had turned upside down. She didn't seem affected by the cold at all. She had probably grown up and far worse. What are you doing? The girl said with widening eyes watching me. I looked at her shaking my head. Obviously, we have to go get your sister, I said. No, she said. I'm not going back there, never. I will never go back to that place. She started to cry. The legs, the fence, the ovens, the cages. You have no idea how horrible it is. Calm down, I said. You have to lead us back towards the hut. You probably won't have to go in. We just need to get your sister and come back and then we can leave. What's your name? Irina. She said. That's a very pretty name, Yakov said. My name is Yakov and this is Nikolai. We're the good guys. We can fight off that witch and bring your sister home. If we do nothing, your sister will die. You know that. Irina nodded, wiping her eyes. Bundled up in her layers of clothing with a fur jacket on the outside, she looked almost like a little Eskimo sitting here in my truck. I repressed the crazy urge to laugh at the image, remembering what was happening. Let's do this, I said, getting out of the truck. I grabbed more ammo from the glove box and saw Yakov grabbing some bullets from these satchel of random goods that he carried around with him in a leather skin. He left the rest of his possessions in the truck, folding the leather carefully back over them and tying it with a cord. It felt eerie, like the dawn before a major battle. I had goosebumps all over my body and notches from the cold. The idea of going up against an infamous witch, a child-eating monster, well, it didn't raise my confidence. Though this happened years ago, I still remember that terrible feeling. As if everything had been leading up to this point and now everything stood still watching. I had heard legends of Baba Yaga growing up. How Satan had taken 12 women who were murderers and criminals, thrown their bodies in a pot together, mixed it up and came out to Baba Yaga. Of course I scoffed at such mist now that I was older, but seeing her there had made me question many things. Irina went out first, not minding the cold at all, her breath coming out in steamy blooms. Yakov and I had flashlights from the truck jumping down behind her, Their light came out dimly, but it gave enough illumination on the white snow to see. The clouds had started to part and the moon had come out in the sky, looking down on us like a single blind eye, like the cataract-ridden eye of Baba Yaga that I had seen before. As we started walking across the M56 and into the woods, that shrill, gurgling shriek came ringing out again. I knew Baba Yaga was close, likely even watching us, she might attack at any moment. We walked further down the trail, a winding deer trail only a couple of feet wide, with branches that would smack me in the face and rocks to trip over every few steps. Just as I had turned to Yakov to say that we may have lost her, she attacked. I saw a blur and then an intense pain in my side as she tackled me, knocking me quickly to the snowy ground. I kept a death grip on my gun, snacking my head against a tree trunk, and the world went white. I drifted in and out of consciousness for a few moments, or perhaps it was longer. Time got strange. As if from a great distance, I heard gunshots and more screaming, and then my vision started to return, and I focused. I saw Yakov crouched on the ground, holding his left hand tightly. I saw a fountain of blood running over his gloves staining the snow in strange droplets and splotches i tried to sit up but a lightning bolt of pain seared my back i groaned raising my hand to my head i felt something sticky on my scalp and pulling my hand back i saw that it was covered in blood it felt warm and wet running down from the right side of my scalp and showing no signs of slowing i felt nauseated and weak for a second seeing all that blood how it stained my clothes in the snow below me. I took a few deep breaths in and out, slowly concentrating and steadying myself. My hands still trembled, and my legs felt like jelly as I tried to stand, but I leaned against the tree and let the waves of weakness and nausea pass by. Yakov wasn't doing much better. He was hyperventilating, staring in shock at his spurting hand. His left thumb looked like it was mostly or entirely gone. We've we've got to put pressure, I said slowly, gulping air, on the wound and ice and snow. I began to tear a strip from one of my shirts and then walked slowly over to Yakov on unsteady legs. I looked into his eyes. They looked dark and tortured and he quickly looked away, tears forming in his eyes from the shock and pain. Irina sat next to him on a log and she watched in horror, looking away whenever she noticed the blood. Let's do this, I said. Ready? He nodded weakly. I pulled the strip of cloth around the hole where his thumb used to, running it around his hand in circles and tightening it. He screamed. I gave him a piece of wood to bite down on and he pulled it even tighter. I saw teeth marks forming deep in the wood. A solid branch, one inch in diameter, I had snapped in half. His breath came in and out so fast that I thought for sure he would pass out, but he kept with me. Soon I had pressure on the wound and the bleeding had slowed considerably. I repeated the process with my head, wrapping more strips of cloth around the bloody scalp wound and pulling. I gritted my teeth, but the pain wasn't nearly as bad as I thought. Except for the crushing migraine. More than anything, I just felt weak and waves of nausea kept assailing me. Splotches would rise in my vision, black dots that seemed to precede passing out. But I would sit down quickly and after a few minutes, I had regained most of my strength. Let's keep going, I said weakly. Irina stood next to Yakov looking petrified. I don't want to go. Irina said stubbornly, "'Please don't make me. "'Irena,' I sighed, "'your sister might die if we turn around. "'We have no choice.' "'But I'm too scared,' she said. "'You have no idea how bad it is there. "'You can't even imagine.' "'But after a few minutes of convincing, "'she continued to lead us. "'A ragtag, a group of injured men and a child, "'limping through the thick snow in the freezing cold.' We walked for an hour in silence, the little girl following her tracks, looking for landmarks that she had passed when she had escaped the first time. She had grown up in the woods most likely, and her family must have taught her much. I was worried about freezing to death, but then I started to notice that my body was growing warmer. I thought perhaps it was simply the first sign of hypothermia. And yet as she walked, I noticed changes in the forest. It had actually gotten warmer. It wasn't just in my mind. Soon the snow had all gone. I looked around and noticed that all the trees were dead, their naked arms extending up to the sky. I had to take off a jacket and then a sweater too. I saw the others doing the same, sweating as it warmed up. A fog began to roll in, covering the whole area. This is the space between the world of the living and the dead. Irina said in her sweet child's voice. It made the statement all the more horrible. The hut is nearby. This is the border of her home. Through the mist, I swore that I could see faces appearing and disappearing. The horror-stricken visages of children in eternally grinning skulls. Soon we came to a clearing. All the trees had stopped in a large circle, a few hundred feet in diameter, in horror, I looked at what lay beyond. A fence surrounded the property made of children's bones. It extended high up at least 20 feet. Calmless arm and leg bones stacked on top of each other, bound together with twine embraced with more bones, attached vertically against the others. I saw no gaps, bigger than an inch and no way to climb it. Looking at the top, I saw pieces of sharpened bone sticking up like some razor wire from hell. Irina shook at my side and she grabbed my hand suddenly, her small body exuding a strength that seemed beyond her physical abilities. I smiled down at her, smoothing her long black hair with my right hand. I felt almost entirely recovered from my earlier concussion, though my head still pounded in time with the beat of my heart. I wish that I had brought some aspirin. How do we get in? Irina asked, taking off another sweater and hanging it over her shoulder. I had absolutely no idea. Let's look around, I said. We began to circle the fence, walking along the circumference of the clearing. I could see a hut beyond through the small gaps. After a minute, we came to the gate, and it stood twenty feet tall, like the rest of the fence, and it would be almost impossible to scale. Unlike the rest of the fence, the gate had been fashioned entirely from skulls. I saw all the small skulls stacked on top of another. As I imagined how many children had died to build just this macabre gate, a feeling of sickness and dread washed over me. Sticking out the front of it in the exact center, I saw a larger skull. It looked like that of a man. In its open mouth, I saw a silver keyhole. In anger, I tried shaking the gate, and it came swinging open, totally silent. It's open, Yakov said, amazed. I looked at him. This feels like a trap, I said. He nodded. Irina hid behind Yakov now, not wanting to look at the eternally greening skull stacked in front of her, bound together with some sort of invisible glue. I looked through the gate at the hut beyond, my breath caught in my throat. It stood on two massive legs. The feet looked like those of a chicken, but the legs loomed ten feet above the ground, where they somehow attached to the hut, holding it up suspended in the air. They were skeletal, all the flesh and muscle long ago wasted away. Are those chicken legs? Yakov asked, his voice low. I felt eyes on me. I looked back into the forest, but I saw no one. Who the heck knows, I asked, but where do you get a chicken that's the size of an elephant, or even bigger? From hell, he asked, and I laughed. You think they have massive chickens down there just going around and pecking at all the hell grains, I said. He smiled. I don't know and I don't want to find out. Let's do this. We began to walk forwards into the clearing. I could see the circular hut more clearly now. An inner light burned, sending out a fiery red glow through the windows. Unlike the rest of this horrible place, it looked like the hut was actually built of wood and stone. It had a quaint look, like the hut of an ancient serf. The top of it met in a point with thatch and twigs carefully aligned to form a rounded dome. The windows were lined with stones. Trunks of dead trees formed the main construction material, pressed one against the next and stacked it vertically in a perfect circle. They had their branches cut off and their bark stripped. The wood ground down to a smooth and uniform texture. My sister is in there, Irina whispered. Please don't make me go back. Please, you don't know what they do in there what she does in there. I grabbed her hand. We can't leave you behind. I think we're being watched. I'm sorry, but you have to come with us. She put her head down looking like a beaten dog. She trudged alongside us slowly as we examined the property, but we saw no sign of anyone. I sighed deeply. All right, let's go inside, I said. Let's find out what horrors await us in that hut. As we walked forward, I heard the gate click close behind us. I turned and looked, but I saw no one. It seemed as if it had closed on its own. I saw to my horror that I would need a key to get out as well as in. Another skull, its mouth open and filled with a silver locking mechanism stuck out on this side as well. The metal in its mouth made it look like it was choking. The eternally gaping mouth like it was screaming. I turned away, focusing on the task at hand, hoping I would survive the next few minutes. The space around the hut looked totally dead. I didn't see a single blade of grass or even a weed to mar the smooth, black earth. It looked so dark in the shadows of the forest that the legs in the hut seemed to hover over an abyss. The door, painted a blinding white, contrasted heavily with the rest of the stocked logs and twigs that composed the ancient-looking hut. A set of rickety wooden stairs led up to the door. I went first, and there was no railing. And with each step I took, I was afraid that it would fall right through the stairs. But they were stronger than they looked and nailed tightly to the beams underneath. Without hesitation, I flung the door open and saw a nightmare laying beyond. A child's body roasted on a spit over the raging fire in the fireplace, giving off a smell of cooking meat and wood smoke that mixed with the rosemary, parsley, and other herbs sprinkled over the body. I saw lampshades made of human skins, covering black candles that flickered and sputtered as the wind came in from outside. In the corner, a little girl crouched in a cage, a cage that was only big enough for a dog. She couldn't stand up and cried constantly. When she saw me, her eyes widened. Please help me! She screamed, she'll be back any moment to get me out of here. She looked like the spitting image of Irina, and I wondered if they were identical twins. Yakov grabbed a knife from his pocket, going over to the cage and looked closely at the lock. He flicked it open and began feverishly pulling at the ancient-looking padlock that held the cage closed. It didn't seem nearly as secure as a modern deadbolt, and I wondered how many years the old witch had possessed it. I walked over to the window and looked outside and my heart jumped in my throat. Outside, I saw Baba Yaga getting out of what looked like a flying pestle as it slowly lowered itself toward the ground. It stood about four feet tall, enough to hide Irina inside it if it came to it. The wood looked beautiful like smooth mahogany, perfectly fit together without cracks or gaps of any kind. It had strange ruins burnt into the exterior. The writing was not Russian or any Slavic language that I knew. She had a mortar as tall as herself. She had her hands wrapped around the dark wood of the mortar. Using the flaring wide end of the bottom to push herself up and over the wall of the pestle. She had extremely thin legs like those of a skeleton. They looked like two iron bars wrapped in skin. I looked close through the window squinting to try to make out every detail. I wondered if she used that mortar and pestle to grind up the bodies of children, to prepare their bodies for a meal. I saw dark stains on the bottom of the mortar, dark red and soaked deeply into the wood. I figured that answered my question. She put the mortar back inside and then turned and looked directly inside the hut. Her eyes met mine, one blind and staring, one filled with intelligence and fury. I ducked away hoping that she hadn't seen me. ''Hurry up, hurry up,'' I said, turning to go help Irina and Yakov. ''She's coming, she's got a flying barrel too.'' I saw they nearly had the lock broken by this point. It was fairly flimsy and ancient looking, and Yakov had a folding knife which he used to pry it loose. Realizing there was nothing that I could do to speed up the process, I ran back towards the window Baba Yaga was gone. She wasn't standing next to her mortar and pestle anymore. In fact, her mortar and pestle were gone too. A moment later, a deafening cacophony exploded across the hut as the roof collapsed inwards, covering us with thin branches, thatch, and straw. I found myself on the floor, unable to remember where I was for a moment. The cold steel of the gun was still gripped tightly in my hand, and then I heard crying and screaming and it all came rushing back to me. I pushed some boards off of myself, feeling blood run down over my forehead. I felt weak. The fireplace on the other side of the room gave off some light. I saw the ceiling had collapsed and, as I looked up, I saw the full moon illuminating the cracked and ragged edges of the ruined roof. A gunshot rang out very close by and I heard a guttural cry of pain and surprise. I ran towards the sound, and after pushing a few beams from a section of collapsed wall to the side, I made a path towards Yakov and Baba Yaga. Yakov stood only a few feet away and had just shot her in the neck at point-blank range. Thick black blood ran down her tattered rags of clothing, staining the coarse brown cloth and making it cling to her skin. She screamed in rage, opening her mouth wide and showing many sharp yellow teeth, running forwards towards him and tackling him. I pushed some more rubble out of the way and ran forwards, the gun still clenched in my hand. Baba Yaga used her shark-like teeth to bite Yakov over and over in a space of mere seconds. He squealed like a pig being slaughtered, an inhuman wail that made me want to cover my ears and look away. Without thinking, I raised the gun and fired. The shot hit her in the shoulder and came out of her chest. With a grunt, she fell sideways onto the ruined floor. I saw with horror that the wound in her neck was stitching itself closed before my eyes. Whatever dark magic had made this creature had clearly given her superhuman healing abilities. I wondered how we should kill her. If possible whether multiple gunshots to the head would do it or not. I had a creeping suspicion that it would not be so easy. I saw Yakov writhing on the floor, his face a mess of torn flesh, his nose missing in pieces of his cheeks, lips, and forehead had deep slices, leaving flaps of skin hanging over his face. I started to run to him, but he shook his head vigorously. "'Get the girls!' he said through a mouth full of blood, choking." His sounds coming out strange, maybe due to the bites that had split his lips and taken part of the top one. Instead, I began to walk over to Baba Yaga, planning to put the pistol to her head point blank and pull the trigger. But the ruins of the thick hut door creaked open at that moment, and I turned, stunned at what I saw. Across the pile of torn beams and splintered boards, I saw the creatures that I had told Yakov about, The ones that I had seen next to the empty car stained with blood. They had hidden in the woods saying, please help me, over and over in a perfect, parrot-like fashion. And now they had come the same pure black eyes, thin bodies and sheet white skin. They looked like cancer patients, without a shred of fat on their bodies, totally hairless and alien, lacking sex organs or nipples, ears or noses. But they were much faster than their emaciated condition would suggest, and they began to rush in, pushing some of the rubble aside and approaching where Yakoff and I stood. I looked from Baba Yaga to the newcomers quickly, my mind racing. She looked up, a sensation of pain in her one good eye, the other flat and white, but her face lit up when she saw who had just arrived. My servants, my sweet children. She said in a deep and cooing voice, You knew your mother was in trouble and came, didn't you? You always know, always. That makes you so beautiful to me. You'll always be mine. I turned back to Baba Yaga, meaning to finish her off, but she sat up rapidly and grabbed my wrist, twisting. I cried out in pain and the gun went flying, settling under debris and rubble. I smelled smoke and to my horror, realized the fireplace had ignited some of the ruined beams. Baba Yaga pushed me back and went flying into the wall, my wrist swelling and burning. In the corner, I saw Irina helping her sister out of the cage. The fire caught the old brittle wood as if it were soaked in gasoline, and I saw with horror that soon, it would cut off the escape route for Irina and her sister. Groaning, I got up quickly. Yakov had reloaded and he began shooting at the creatures that approached him. Baba Yaga stood up slowly, still dripping black blood on the floor looking much weaker than before. I counted that as a blessing, though I didn't think that it would last. Whatever dark magic kept this monster alive was more powerful than a flesh wound apparently. I had to choose between helping Irina or getting the gun and I saw no choice. I dived into the rubble where I had last seen it, feeling splinters and nails poking into my skin. A few pierced my arms and legs through my clothing and I felt sticky trickles of blood soaking them. I ignored the pain of my hand, the throbbing migraine that I still had from the concussion, and now this new insult to my body. The adrenaline helped but I knew that if I survived this, I would be sore and cut for weeks. The black eyed creatures ran at me, and one grabbed my leg as I ducked and felt around furiously in the dark for the pistol. The fire kept spreading, giving me slightly more light through the crooked beams and collapsed roof, and I saw a glint of metal in the dim illumination, just as the creatures had pulled me out. I grabbed frantically, feeling the cold grip of the gun against my hand. Turning around quickly, I fired without aiming shooting point-blank at the creature standing there. One got hit in the chest, a splatter of the same black blood as Baba Yaga's standing the wall behind it. I missed the other one, and it lunged, snapping with its twisted yellow teeth, going straight from my throat or face. Without thinking, I fired again, and the shot went through its nose holes, disintegrating the front of its face and sending a dark spray of blood out behind it. It fell on me, I struggled at pushing the body off, all I could smell was smoke now, and I began to choke and sputter. I looked around wildly but the smoke had grown thick, and I could barely see a few feet in front of me. I looked for Irina and her sister moving towards where I had last seen them, but quickly gave up and started calling out. ''Irina, get out of here now, we have to go!'' I said. I felt a small hand thrust into mine, and thinking that it was Irina, I pulled, running towards the door. I ran straight into Yakov, who was choking on the smoke. I looked into his eyes and gasped. His face was a mask of blood. Only two dark eyes peered out from the destroyed flesh below. He kept spitting blood as he coughed. Without thinking, I pushed him towards the door, continuously pulling the little girl behind me. More creatures stood there, but we shot the ones on the stairs and the others retreated away, galloping on all fours like some strange animal. They looked back with hatred, their eyes black and shining. They ran towards the gate, which was now open. I wondered if one of them had a key. Turning around, I saw the hut had turned into a blazing inferno. To my horror, I saw that I did not hold Irina's hand but her twin sisters instead. ''Where's Irina?'' I asked, panicked, and then the screaming started from the hut. The floor began to collapse, chunks of molten wood falling between the dead skeletal chicken legs that held up the hut. Like something from a nightmare, I saw Baba Yaga stumbling out, her skin melting, her hair on fire, her one good eye still peering out from the mask of burning flesh. Her shrill, ear-splitting shriek echoed through the forest around us, and I heard another, quieter scream start coming from the hut. It sounded like a little girl. Without thinking, I began to push Yakov and Irina's sister out of the gate, praying for Irina's safety, but knowing that the only thing she could hope for was a quick death from suffocation. No one could survive that inferno. She was right when she said that we shouldn't have come here. But I had forced her and now she was dying or dead. She ran out into the woods, following the trail back to the truck. Yakov kept stumbling and falling. I can't go on much longer, he said. I think I'm dying, she really did a number on me. I feel lightheaded and I think that I might pass out soon. That's just the blood loss, I said, reassuring him but not believing it. Once we get you to a hospital, you'll be fine. You just need a few stitches, it's not as bad as it looks. He laughed, a sarcastic and bitter sound. Don't lie to the dying, he muttered. And just as the truck came into sight, the black-eyed creatures came galloping silently out of the woods on all fours, a dozen of them surrounding us. They didn't blink or show any emotion, but as if a signal had been given, They swarmed us all at once. I began shooting, having refilled the chamber with bullets from my pocket, but there were too many. I cleared a path towards the truck, shooting five in the chest and aiming for center mass. Yakov began to fire, but many of his shots missed as blood streamed over his face and eyes, and soon we were both out of bullets. I grabbed the little girl and ran towards the truck as Yakov held his place. Roaring with bloodlust and excitement, pulling out a folding knife from his pocket. Come on, he screamed, but he just smiled. Goodbye, friend, he said as the creatures jumped on him, and he began stabbing and fighting in his last moments, cutting at their throats and faces as they ate him alive. I took Irina's sister to a hospital and told the police about everything that had happened. They looked at me like I was a madman. The little girl corroborated my story, but they just dismissed it as the imagination of a child. Nonetheless, they went onto the site and they found Yakov's body. They ruled that he had been mauled by animals. There were, after all, many bears in that area. They also followed our footsteps into the woods, but said they found no hut, no fire, and no clearing. They said the footsteps just stopped suddenly, as if we had been abducted by a UFO. The hut had gone and so had Baba Yaga. After that day, I finished my drive, sold my truck and made plans to move out of Russia forever. I had seen enough. But still, I wonder what else lies in those woods. What other secrets remain to be found? And thank you all for listening to this week's episode, I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.